For the week of March 21st, 2017, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host. My name is Stephen Cox. Hello. On this show this week, we talk with Seattle PI writer Joel Connolly about the special election in the state Senate's 45th district, an election that actually has national implications. Uh, and then we speak with Doug Honig. He is the communications director for the ACLU of Washington. And we talk about the many ways that the ACLU is pushing back against the Trump agenda here in the state. And of course, we will have our dose of good news followed by our weekly call to action. Joel Connolly writes about local politics for Seattle PI, and he joins us now on the program to talk about the election that is happening this year in the 45th State Senate District, which encompasses Eastern King County. Thank you so much for joining us, Joel. Good afternoon. So this race has managed to catch the attention of a lot of people, even at the national level. Uh, A writer uh, named David Neer of Daily Coast is calling this one of the most consequential races of 2017 nationwide. Uh, First of all, let's start by talking a little bit about what is at stake in the balance of power in Olympia. What is at stake is simply this. The Democrats control the governor's office, have very, very narrow control, 50 to 48, of the state House of Representatives. The state Senate is currently split with 24 Republicans, 24 Democrats, and a rogue Democrat whose vote gives Republicans control of the Senate. So if they are able to flip the seat in the 45th district, there is a special election due to the death of its incumbent state senator, Andy Hill. Uh, The Democrats will control the Senate. They will control both branches of the legislature and the governor's office. They will have flipped control of a state uh, legislature in the direction of the Democrats, which hasn't happened in very many places across uh, across the United States in recent years. And it will be probably the third most important thing after the governor's races in New Jersey and in Virginia on the political map this year. Yeah, Washington's managed to be pretty important this year. Um, You mentioned State Senator Tim Sheldon, who is the rogue Democrat. Uh, He is technically a Democrat, but shifted power for the Republicans in 2013. What exactly happened there? Um, Quite simply, he has for a long time voted with uh, Republicans on legislative issues, and he has supported uh, Republicans for president and governor. And after the 2012 election, there came a, a situation where he and State Senator Rodney Tom uh, of Bellevue area uh, basically flipped and gave the Republicans a one-vote Senate majority. They picked up another seat in a special election later that year. And so they have controlled the legislature's upper chamber and to a very large extent controlled the writing of the state budget and controlled state tax policy. Um, ever since. Yeah, so clearly the stakes are high. Um, Dino Rossi was appointed to hold the seat that was vacated by uh, Andy Hill when he passed away. Uh, But he has indicated that he is not going to run for office. Uh, I'd like to talk about the Democrat, uh, the the candidate the Democrats have selected, Monka Dingra. People are very excited about her. Tell us a little bit about her and her background. She is a senior uh, deputy prosecutor. She is a citizen activist, notably in schools on the east side. She is uh, considered a very promising candidate. 
to the point where even national groups are uh, supporting her. She was denounced by uh, Shift Washington, the recalcitrant, the people from Rob McKenna's 2012 uh, campaign for governor who have yet to concede the election, um, and uh, denounced as a far-left radical. Um, you don't say that about senior deputy uh, King County prosecutors, particularly if they are a senior deputy under a Republican prosecutor. And um, so consequently, that kind of ridiculous piece of boilerplate is the only thing that has been thrown at her so far. She's raised a great deal of money and uh, has had both Senator Murray and uh, Rep- and Governor uh, Inslee signed fundraising letters on her behalf. Uh, they are both veterans at uh, mass blitzes of emails, and they are blitzing for her. How is she polling thus far? It looks pretty favorable for her in the, the, these early days, yes? It's kind of difficult to run somebody against nobody. So public policy polling, which is a pretty good uh, reputation, uh, pitted her against Dina Rossi and came out with uh, her ahead 46 to 40. But more interestingly, they also polled on Trump, who has a favorability of 34% in the uh, district, which is lower than his lowest approval rating in any national poll. And also that Governor Jay Inslee is... uh, gets thumbs up from 52% and thumbs down from only 36%. So again, a political climate hostile to the Republican president and uh, tolerant of the Democratic governor. Uh, I guess his uh, his constructive policies uh, outweighing his tendency to extreme make extremely goofy remarks. <laughs> That's one way of putting it. Uh, she is not the official candidate uh, for the office. She certainly has made uh, a lot of headlines uh, in her declaration. Do you expect to see anybody else run against her on the Democratic side? I think that there will be a lot of weight on other potential candidates to uh, stay out of the race. When I was a freshman in college, um, my instructor in English uh, put on the blackboard, there is no substitute for uh, early preparation, and backed up that statement with a murderous pop quiz on the Saturday morning of a football game. Uh, that, uh, <laughs> what I call Professor Rathburn's rule, applies uh, applies in electoral politics as well, that you get out early, you uh, raise an awful lot of money, you uh, gain multiple endorsements, and you basically close the door on opposition. Of course, there are certain people stubborn enough not to be impressed by this and to come into the race, but at the moment she appears to... Uh, be in the catbird seat. Now, as I mentioned, Rossi says that he is not interested in running for the seat. Have the Republicans named any candidates at this point? Has anybody declared? They're still out there recruiting. The reason I guess Rossi was included in the poll was to try to discourage him to run on the one hand. But also he is an individual, to use the Latin word, who has gravitas. Um, one of the uh, probably the ranking budget writing expert that the Republicans have in the legislature, somebody who has come up with a bond issue plan to, uh, to try to provide our state parks with some badly over, uh, over overdue maintenance. So he would theoretically be a strong candidate. But remember, this is a man who was nearly elected governor, nearly elected governor again, lost a U.S. Senate race by a small margin. It's kind of like asking Yo-Yo Ma to uh, to play in your neighborhood tavern. I mean, you know, he's uh, he's he's been he's been up to the uh, cliff, even though he hasn't uh, quite climbed the mountain. And I would imagine uh, probably still harbors 
some ambition for statewide office. Right. Yeah, like it would be like asking him to play uh, junior varsity after having lettered in a sport. And uh, I guess extending that uh, a little bit further about your story about your professor and the pop quiz on the morning of the football game. How'd you do on that pop quiz? Um, everybody bombed. Rothburn <laughs> made, his, made his point. Uh, I, um, how do I put this? Uh, ran into him on campus two days later and with a very guilty uh, grin on my face. And he looked at me and went, grrr. Um, and a rather lasting friendship was born at that point. Well, there you go. Well, Joel Connolly, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate the insight. Okay. Thank you for having me. Have a good day. Time now for this week's call to action. But first, as we are now in the habit of doing, let's have some good news. Uh, And man, it's been a week of some pretty good news in many ways. Uh, First, Trump's travel ban 2.0 has been stayed by federal judges in both Hawaii and Maryland and is sure to face further legal challenges down the road, some of which we will talk about in just a moment when we speak with Doug Honig of the ACLU. Uh, Spoiler, it's not looking good for Team Trump. Then, James Comey, on Monday while testifying in front of the Intelligence Committee, said two key things. One, he said that the FBI and the Department of Justice have no evidence to back up Trump's claims that Barack Obama wiretapped Trump Tower. Actually, he referred to the claims as tweets, which is it's something my ears are just having trouble getting used to, hearing grown adults under sworn testimony use the word tweet with a straight face. But... Welcome to 2017, I guess. Uh, And then, and more importantly, he said that the FBI is officially investigating Russian interference in the 2016 election. He did not go into specifics, but rest assured, we will be hearing about them eventually. And finally, the ACA replacement bill that has come to be known as Trump Care is not looking so good. It's maybe DOA. And for the most interesting of reasons, I think, Republicans in the House are split on it. Some don't think it goes far enough, and others whose constituents have come to rely on Obamacare are afraid for their political careers. So, here then is this week's call to action, and it is one that is very effective. Call your congressperson and tell them to reject Trump care, especially if he or she is a Republican. They're the ones who can make it go away. If you have a personal story to share about how Obamacare has benefited you or even saved your life or the life of a loved one, now is that rare time that it is recommended to email as opposed to call your member of Congress because these stories really, really count. Oh, Also, if you are calling and you can't get through because apparently the phones are absolutely jammed and voicemail boxes are full, you can try something that I just discovered called ResistBot. So here's that works. You text resist, the word resist, to 50409. That's resist to 50409. And it'll allow you to compose and send a good old-fashioned fax to your member of Congress. Wow. Nothing like using 21st century technology to generate 20th century technology, right? But whatever you do, you call, you email, you can right now put your own personal nail in the coffin of Trump care. And that is this week's call to action. (laughs) 
Doug Honig is the communications director of ACLU Washington, and he joins us now. Doug, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. So last week, federal courts in both Hawaii and Maryland issued stays against the Trump administration's travel ban. Uh, ACLU lawyers, alongside uh, some other groups, successfully argued against that executive order. Can you just briefly summarize their argument? Yeah, it's that the order itself, although it's narrower than the original travel ban, is still unconstitutional because it singles out people based on their religion. Now, uh, the Trump administration says that's not true, that it's just people in countries. But if you look at the whole context of this, which is what the court did, uh, Trump had made very clear throughout the campaign that he wants to ban Muslims from entering the country. And he's picked six countries that are overwhelmingly Muslim, and it's clearly designed to keep Muslims out of the country. And and the other part of that is that the government hasn't really given evidence to justify why this is needed on national security grounds. So the the court agreed with our arguments that it's uh, unconstitutionally singling out people based on their religion. And of course, that violates the First Amendment. Right. So the administration, in response to this, has signaled that they are going to uh, appeal those rulings. What is the ACLU doing currently to prepare for that eventuality? Well, we think we have very strong arguments, and most of the courts that have looked at this have sided with the ACLU or with attorney generals or other people making uh, similar arguments. So we're prepared for an appeal. Uh, To to backtrack a little bit, um, during the campaign uh, last year, the national ACLU did a very thorough examination of all the things said by Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump when they were running for president to prepare for likely eventualities. And then when Trump indeed got elected, the ACLU nationally focused on Trump and prepared for a variety of eventualities and started preparing for what the litigation would look like. So we've been preparing for things like this for months and we'll be ready for an appeal. Yeah, in fact, there was a full-page ad that the ACLU took out, I believe, on uh, November 21st, basically saying, see in court. So, indeed, they are. Um, Yeah. yeah. And it's funny, because that's what Donald Trump has said, and we're saying the same thing. Yeah. Uh, You know, and it's important to remember, the ACLU is nonpartisan. We never endorse political candidates of any stripe. We never align ourselves with a party. And we've sued just about every president. We strongly criticized Obama on some of his uh, initiatives. And so that's what we do is our, our goal is to defend the Bill of Rights and to hold government accountable for respecting the Constitution. And so this is just core to our mission And when Donald Trump violates the Constitution, you can expect to see the ACLU in court. It is looking likely, and a lot of legal scholars are predicting this, that this issue is going to appear in some form eventually before the Supreme Court. If it goes, do you know if the ACLU plans to be part of the challenge against the Trump administration? Oh, oh, sure. Absolutely. Um, The ACLU files more briefs before the U.S. Supreme Court than any entity other than the U.S. government. 
And basically, the, the, uh, our, our legal work is divided into uh, a couple of categories. You have lawsuits in which we directly sue, and we're representing clients in the lawsuit. And there's a whole lot of others where somebody else files the initial lawsuit, but we filed an amicus or right. friend, friend of the court brief. Yeah. Yes. Depending on which case gets before the U.S. Supreme Court, we'll be involved either directly or as amicus. I would like to shift over and talk uh, some about what the ACLU is doing specifically here in Washington, because this is where you work. Um, talk, if you can, because you mentioned that it's a it's a pretty robust list of things that the uh, the Trump administration is doing that the ACLU is taking issue with. Can we talk about some of the ways that the ACLU is pushing back specifically against the Trump agenda here in the state? Uh, sure. And, and the thing I should point out is that a lot of the Trump agenda hasn't been rolled out yet. In other words, there's a lot of stuff that uh, Trump or people in the administration have talked about, which we haven't seen in policy yet. So there are a lot of stuff we're prepared for, but haven't had to take action on. In, in terms of the travel ban, which is certainly the most high profile, um, the ACLU of Washington has submitted friend of the court briefs backing the AG's lawsuit against the travel ban. And we also have filed our own lawsuit against a specific part of it that isn't well covered by other litigation. And that's how the travel ban impacts non-immigrants, excuse me, non-immigrants. Mm-hmm. That's Uh, People who have come here from other countries not with the intention of settling in the U.S., but people who come here as students or as workers. And they're being very affected by the travel ban if they're from one of the targeted countries, uh, because if, if they're a grad student, it's expected that they'll be attending conferences abroad and consulting with people abroad. Uh, similar is true for people who are working for Microsoft and other companies. And, and also, they want to be able to visit their family and loved ones abroad. And in both cases, their fear is if they leave the country, they won't be able to get back in. So we filed lawsuit challenging the travel ban for them. We've also included in our lawsuit uh, organizations which deal with refugee resettlement, and that includes the Episcopal Diocese, which has a very robust refugee resettlement program. And also we recently amended the legal case to include some refugees. And these are people who are already in the country who have family that was set to rejoin to rejoin them here and has not been able to do so because of the travel ban. So we're also challenging the ban as it impacts refugees. Since you bring up refugees, and I'll just ask you to possibly state what is fairly obvious, uh, the fact that one of the provisions of Trump's travel ban was to reduce the number of refugees from 110,000 down to 50,000, it seems fairly arbitrary uh, and basically a number that's more theatrical than anything else, because either you're saying that refugees represent a clear and present danger to our country in any number or they don't at all. Has the ACLU or do you personally have, have any response to, uh, to that particular tenet of the ban? 
Well, I think the Department of Homeland Security has had its own response to that, saying that when you look at who's caused problems uh, of terrorism here in the United States, it hasn't been people who enter the country. It's been people who've been here for quite a, a long time, often U.S. citizens, who mm -hmm. get radicalized, but they haven't singled out refugees as the problem at all. Uh, and something also to keep in mind, uh, you always have to remember the human impact of these policies, because a lot of times when you hear immigration, it, it's a little bit of, a, of an abstract, but what we're really talking about is tearing families apart. When you deport somebody who's been working and living in the United States for quite a while, they typically have... Uh, spouse, kids, and if not that, they work, have friends. They're very much part of the fabric of our community, and that's being the part. So the verifications of deporting somebody and not allowing them to reunify uh, with their family are much broader than just the impact on the one person. Yeah, the stories that you, you hear about are just heartbreaking of, of families having contingency plans in place. Uh, there have been discussions of, you know, who takes custody of the child uh, in case, you know, one or both parents are deported. Um, yeah. That gets us into another issue that's separate from the travel ban, and that's something that we're still waiting to see how aggressively it uh, plays out in practice. But it, it has to deal with deportations of people here who are undocumented. Now, remember, there are estimated 11 million undocumented people nationally, tens of thousands of uh, people here in Washington, and they're people who, as I say, are very much part of the fabric of local communities and schools and workplaces. Under the Obama administration, there were a lot of deportations initially, and then after uh, he received a lot of criticism, he narrowed the policy to just go after undocumented people who were accused of committing serious crimes. Uh, under the Trump administration, that recently has changed, where the announced policy is that they'll potentially go after anybody who has committed any sort of crime, which could be shoplifting five years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and actually, since being in the country undocumented is not a lawful act, potentially anybody could be deported. Uh, there have been some raids by the federal agency ICE on places, and there have been uh, some reported instances uh, of people going to court, one person for a domestic protection order and just being hauled away for deportation then, uh, somebody else hauled away in front of their child. And we're waiting to see how widespread that will be, but that could have huge ramifications because of the numbers. And the fact that uh, Trump has said he plans to hire tens of thousands of more workers for the federal agency which does this is very ominous. And even and these sorts of things that you're talking about are happening even in uh, declared so-called sanctuary cities like Seattle. So nobody really knows precisely how this is going to play out. Uh, one thing I would love it if you could address for listeners is what should people know about the rights and protections that currently do remain in place for immigrants? Well, you don't have to let somebody into your house unless they have a warrant. So just because a government agent comes and knocks and wants to get in, you don't have to let them in just because they're asking to get in. Uh, and that's probably the biggest, most important thing to keep in mind. 
Okay. Immigration law in general is rather complex. And so the ACLU nationally on its website, ACLU.org, uh, has a card of rights when ICE agents come to you. And for anybody who's trying to support somebody or is working with that population, strongly encourage you to go to the National ACLU website. Here in Washington, we're going to create our own version of the card but it's not ready yet. Now, and you asked a little while ago about what we're doing here in Washington. So we've started doing some Know Your Rights trainings for agencies that work with people who potentially could be targeted. We're also working with allies on this, particularly the Northwest Immigrant Rights Project, One America, and the Council on American-Islamic Relations. And all of those organizations have websites with valuable information. So that's another way to get educated. I'll throw you a little bit of a curveball here uh, because I noticed in the news that the the, uh, the ACLU has developed an app called Mobile Justice uh, that is designed for that purpose. It's currently not available in Washington, but I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about the app and if and when it might be available here in the state. Yeah, we're looking at that, and I can't give you a a timetable, but the the basic thing we want people to know is you absolutely have the right to uh, take pictures with an iPhone or with a regular camera of police doing or other law enforcement doing their job uh, as long as you're not physically interfering. So as long as you keep a little distance back and that when we've had cases where police have told people to turn off the cameras, you can't do that. And it's important to understand that you absolutely can do that. And you don't need an app to do that. And you don't need an app to post that information on the internet or send it to us if you believe the police are violating somebody's rights. And if you are filming a a police officer doing something wrong and the police officer does challenge you and tells you, turn off your phone, what is the proper response then? Do you say I am within my rights as a U.S. citizen to do what I'm doing under the First Amendment? What, what is the most effective thing to do in that situation? Say, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, but I have the right to do this under our Constitution. And you don't even have to say U.S. citizen, because it's also important to re- remember that the Constitution applies to all people living here. It doesn't actually say citizen. Uh, And just make sure you're keeping enough of a distance back that anybody reasonable would say you're not interfering. And the fact that the officer may experience your filming as interfering doesn't mean that you're actually interfering and you certainly have the right to do that. So people are extremely energized right now. I'm sure that you have seen, I mean, the ACLU has had a record number of contributions uh, this year. Uh, and memberships. So here in Washington, our, our membership has either tripled or more than tripled. We were 18,000 ACLU members on Election Day. We're now well over 50,000. It's just incredible. And national ACLU nationwide went from 400,000 members to 1.2 million members. So it's really been extraordinary. That's incredibly encouraging. And uh, I know that people who listen to this show uh, are very active, most of whom are in the Indivisible movement. The ACLU just launched a new platform called People Power that helps people get involved. Can you tell us about that briefly? 
Yeah, it's a project of the National ACLU that the National ACLU is running. And it basically is designed for people who want to take action in, in local communities in addition to other things that they may be doing. And there was it was launched with a bunch of basically house meetings where people could tune into a live streamed event uh, a couple of weekends ago, which ended up with an ask for people to seek meetings with local law enforcement to press upon them the importance of not cooperating with federal immigration officials in the Trump deportation scheme. And uh, we expect that there will be other action asks. And certainly, we at the ACLU of Washington have just set up uh, a page on our website, aclu-wa.org, with resources for people here in Washington who are participating in the People Power Program. And also, we look forward to working with those activists on some other issues relating to law enforcement that we're going to be working on fairly soon. So stay tuned. Absolutely. And I will definitely include a link to the uh, the ACLU of Washington website. And I should also point out that there is a pretty robust list of events coming up as well, uh, things that people can get involved in, one of which uh, music fans will love. Uh, uh, KEXP co-sponsors an event. So that's and, and it also uh, features a lot of local uh, craft breweries. So music and activism and uh, and beer. You can't beat it, right? Absolutely. Um, one, one of the breweries contacted us and said they had a new beer, uh, Beer Trump's Hate. <laughs> I, well, I can't wait to try it. All right. That's fantastic. Well, Doug Honig, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, and, and thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk. And that is it for this week's Washington State Indivisible podcast. I thank you so much for listening. Oh, and I have really exciting news. Uh, The show is now available on IndivisibleGuideWA.org. This site is just an extraordinary resource. You can use it to find events in your area. It's a place where the many indivisible groups in the state, they're actually now well over 300, uh, can coordinate and increase their effectiveness collectively. It's kind of a one-stop shop for all things indivisible in Washington State. We are going to be speaking with the site's creator, Barbara Key, on next week's show. So we'll be talking more about the site in depth then. But in the meantime, if you would like to contact me, please do. I am really loving all the great feedback. The email address is WashingtonIndivisiblePod at gmail.com. Again, WashingtonIndivisiblePod at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. Thank you again to Joel Connolly of Seattle PI and to Doug Honig of ACLU Washington. And thanks to you, of course, as always, for listening. We'll talk to you guys next time. Bye.